Gracious and loving God, you are the beginning and the end, and in the middle, we long to see your face. We pray that through these words, these human words, your living word might be heard, and we catch a glimpse of your face, your glory. Amen. A woman once told me that when she was a little girl growing up in the American Episcopal Church, that's kind of like the Anglican Church, in the 1940s, no Christmas decorations in her house went up until Christmas Eve. She asked her mother why, and this is what her mother said, Christmas, Christmas should come as a burst of light, she said. And without darkness, there's no need for light. Without Advent, she said, without Advent, there's no need for Christmas. Without Advent, there's no need for Christmas. And of course, Advent is the four weeks leading up to the Christmas season, a season of preparation for Christmas. But she said, without Advent, there's no need for Christmas. And when she said that, she could have fooled me. Because I was walking through Costco the Thursday before Halloween, and aside from the treats still being for sale, the, Christmas or the Halloween stuff was mostly gone, and candy canes and snow globes had already burst on the scene. The burst had come. If you look around in our culture, Christmas seems to get along plenty fine without Advent, actually. But what I think her mother was referring to, though, was the meaning of Christmas in the Christian year, the Christian faith, because they're not necessarily the same thing. That Christmas is not just an annual celebration, although I like celebrations, nor is it a really important birthday. Jesus is important, so why not have a birthday? But it's not just about those things. But what she was getting at was that Advent provides the questions or question that Christmas answers. It sets the stage for Christmas. Without Advent, Christmas loses much of its power and perhaps all of its meaning. All the world's great religions, ideologies, and philosophical traditions in some way try to describe human life and human existence. And all of them try to give an account for what's wrong with the world, why things aren't the way they should be or they could be. And all of them offer a solution to the problem. Many forms of Buddhism, for example, see suffering at the root of all human problems. And the solution to suffering is to transcend and overcome suffering. Marxism, communism, maybe not the same thing, but, you know, let's draw a broad brush here. Marxism is another example. sees class conflict and oppression and exploitation of workers by owners as the problem. And the solution is revolution. That's a good slogan. The solution is revolution. But for Christianity, the way of Jesus Christ, Advent describes the problem, and Christmas 
describes the solution. Advent is the reason for Christmas, so without Advent, we wouldn't understand the mess we're in. No Advent, no need for Christmas. Which brings to me to today's scripture passage. Today's scripture passage comes to us from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Like I said, not the most Christmassy of books or passages. There's no Paul in the Nativity play, unfortunately. That would be wonderful. When that's this sort of little short bald guy in the corner writing letters with the donkeys. Probably not. But Paul knows how the story works, the whole story from beginning to end. Paul's told this story many different times to many different faith communities in many different ways. But this letter, the letter to the church in Rome, is considered his most complete or masterful telling of this story. In the letter, Paul sketches the story of the Bible from beginning, the creation of the universe through Adam and Eve, all the way to Jesus and beyond and everything in between. It's like 16 chapters. Remember how I said that every religion, ideology, philosophy gives an account for what's wrong with the world? That's the in-between part where Paul gets to the problem at the heart of human life. Why things aren't the way they should be or could be. And at the heart of human life, according to Paul, is one of the most misused and misunderstood words in the Bible. Sin. I know when you say that, it's almost like you cringe a little bit. Sin. Now, sin is usually thought of as bad things we do. Smoking, drinking, dancing, other things that come with smoking, drinking, and dancing. You name it. Murder, maybe, but that's not, oddly, that's not the first thing that comes to people's heads. And of course, in our definition, sinners are people who have done bad things or opposed, as opposed to the upright, righteous people who haven't. The word sin is usually used as a weapon to shame, guilt, or otherwise hurt. Like I said, it's a misuse of the word. But according to Paul, all human beings are in the same category. There are no people who are without sin. Being human and Sin, go together. And sin is the less, thing, less the things that we do than it is a description of why we do them. I am of the flesh, Paul writes in chapter 7. I am sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. For Paul, sin is more like a power or a gravitational force in life, something that touches us each in the deepest level, kind of beyond our consciousness. And though we're good, created good by God, though we're made in God's image and beloved by their creator, there is still something mysterious at work below the surface in human life. The most helpful way of thinking about this, I've found, is the language that the early church fathers and mothers used. You know them, they're on your bedside table, you know, Athanasius and uh, all them. Stack of books, you've got Athanasius, you've got John Grissom, you've got Augustine, they're all there. They talked about sin 
with the language of illness. An illness not of the body, but of the soul. Sin is a spiritual sickness that we all possess by virtue of being human, hampering our spiritual health. And I mean, if that doesn't seem realistic to you, it doesn't take much of a look around our world and a walk through human history to see the truth that is in this. Reinhold Niebuhr once said that sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. Basically, the only teaching that you could prove by just by looking around and observing without a leap of faith. Despite our huge technological and humanitarian humanitarian advances as a species, we all face the same ailments, even if they're in different strains. Plagues of selfishness and greed incubating in offshore accounts. And on the street, our symptoms are poverty in the midst of plenty. Violence infects relationships and is passed down in families generation to generation and finds its most cancerous expression in our willingness to wound and kill each other in war. And worse still, maybe, is the epidemic of our own indifference towards each other's suffering. This is the problem that needs a solution. Our humanity is sick, Paul says. The reason why we as humanity in general and human beings in particular seem to fall short so much, why it's so hard to do the right thing, there is something holding us back. There is something holding us back. This is the problem. This is the problem. And to double back to the beginning, This is why we need Advent. We need Advent because Advent is a season of hope. The season where we seek after a solution. One where we take an honest look at our lives and our world. One and where we wait, we long for freedom, we reach out for something more. We need Advent because it gives us the diagnosis for our illness. Come, O come, we pray. And when we do, we're praying for a cure, for that which ails the world. And like I said, Paul knows the story. Yes? I'm just getting to that. Yes, I'm just getting to that. No worries. If I just end it, should I just end it there? Everybody vote? Should I end the sermon there? No. Like I said, Paul knows the story. Paul knows the story. According to Paul, there's an illness at the heart of humanity. But since he knows the story, he also sees a solution. He knows there's an illness, but he also knows that there is indeed a cure. 
And the description of the cure resides in today's very short passage. Our passage for today comes at the very end of Romans. And like most letters, it ends with a summary. And get ready for this. This is the summary. Now to God, Paul writes, now to God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but is now disclosed, this is a very long sentence, and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the Gentiles according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Get into that too. The message Paul's been sharing throughout the letter is about Jesus. It's the same message that has transformed him. He believes that his listeners have heard this, and this will change everything for them, that God will strengthen and transform them. And the summary of this message can be found in this phrase, the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but is now disclosed. Whenever Paul uses this phrase mystery, or in Greek mysterion, he's talking about the union of God and humanity in Jesus. That strange paradox Christians talk about. Jesus fully human, fully divine. He's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about Christmas. To go back to the medical metaphor, remember Paul says that our humanity is sick, but he says Christmas is the cure. God entering into our humanity. Christmas is the cure that's been there since the beginning of time, a mystery that was kept secret from the ages, now disclosed. When I first started in seminary, my friend and mentor Edwin Searcy went on medical leave. He was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a cancer of the blood, as far incurable, one that he will live with for the rest of his life. The problem, as he described it once, was basically that his whole system is infected with this cancer. Since his whole system was sick, his body couldn't generate a cure to fight the disease. So one of his first treatments was a stem cell transplant. He needed help from the outside. He needed cells from a healthy person, which, if not curing him, would be able to hold the disease at bay. And this is what Christmas is like. God and humanity coming together. Healthy cells injected into our ill humanity. A new humanity transplanted into the old one. The theologian Markheim says it like this. It is, it is as if through our own unhealthy practices and mistreatment of each other, we had degraded our bodies to the point where a deadly plague was sweeping through our population. In the midst of this affliction, one uninfected person steps forward to help. In the course of her work, she contracts the illness, 
improbably, after a long struggle, her immune system successfully fights off the disease. She dies, nonetheless ravaged by complications, but she does not die before the antibodies her body had produced could be shared to provide the basis for a cure, infused into others to heal them. Often in the Christian tradition, we've spoken of Jesus as being without sin, which doesn't mean that Jesus was just the ultimate goody-goody, but for Paul, Jesus is the new human, the uninfected person, the one with the healthy cells to heal, to regenerate us and our ailing hearts. And in Jesus, God has brought us the cure for what ails us, the only cure for selfishness is self-giving and self-sacrifice. The only cure for our hatred and inhumanity towards one another is God's perfect love that overwhelms and overpowers it like a powerful antigen. In Jesus, God has brought us the cure like stem cells from outside the system. The cure is God himself, not in the y'all need Jesus sort of way, but in Jesus, God has given us perfect love, perfect justice, and perfect mercy, injecting it straight into our ailing humanity until someday the disease is wiped off the earth, until it's gone forever. We live in an Advent world. We long, we hope for something new, something different. We hope the world could be different than it is. We need Advent because without it, we have no idea where we're at. Without Advent, we wouldn't have the diagnosis. But Christmas, without Christmas, we wouldn't have the cure. Of course, the cure isn't immediate. If you look around, you'll also discover that truth as well. But we know because of Jesus, because of the life, love, and mercy we have seen in him, we know that substantial healing of our lives and our world is possible here, even now. Christmas is the cure. And this is the beauty of Christmas, why it's worth celebrating. It's worth celebrating because there is a cure. There's a cure for the hardness in our hearts. There's a cure for the brokenness in our world. It means our lives can be different. It means the way the world is doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Christmas says it doesn't have to be that way. So, friends, I wish you a Merry Christmas because Christmas is one of those world-shaking events. And I hope that you will join in singing tonight or tomorrow that great anthem that says,
No more sins and sorrows grow. No more let sins and sorrows grow. No more thorns invest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. We live in an Advent world, but Christmas is coming. Christmas is already here. And so, like Paul says at the end of his letter, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to whom the glory forever. Amen.